If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, that You reveal for us in Your Word um, the great work of redemption that You have done for us. And as we embrace that rich redemption by faith, You also call us to live in a manner appropriate to the calling that we have received in Christ, and that includes what we're talking about today having a heart to seek and restore those who are lost. Not simply the lost in the world, although that's so very important and a duty that many of us neglect too much, but also the ongoing work of restoration within the body of believers when sin disrupts our fellowship and when sin causes us to stumble or even to be trapped. And we thank You that You've not only given us um, instruction that is motivational, that instills in us a particular attitude of heart, that kind of humility before Your grand redemption that leads us to be generous in forgiving others, but also specific um, instructions on how to do certain things. And so, Lord, in this last hour as we look at these verses from Matthew 18:15 and following. Uh, we pray that you would help us. It's a, it's a lot to try to absorb in a short period of time, but at least, again, give us indications of where we can continue to reflect and think about how to actually implement this restorative discipline, this restorative forgiveness um, in our own midst. Uh, thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for the eagerness of your people here to receive your word. It is so delightful to preach to them, so delightful to open your word for them because they are hungry and thirsty for your truth. They know that in your word they have their very life. They delight themselves in the Savior. They rejoice to hear the shepherd's voice. And I'm humbled and so grateful for the privilege, the high privilege of being able to open the scriptures to them. So will you grant us Uh, the stamina and the alertness, um, the focus that we need uh, for this last little bit of exposition and application. And we pray it for the sake of our great shepherd, the the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. (laughs) Quite so, quite so. Okay, I mentioned in an earlier... Uh, message that Paul was conscious of being called to a ministry of reconciliation. That's the way he categorizes his view of his work. And I mentioned that that, of course, focused in the message of reconciliation, uh, the reconciliation of men, sinners, to God through the cross of Christ, and also the reconciliation of all kinds of people or people groups to one another through that same cross. But I also mentioned at that point that it also involves 
thinking through the implications and applying them and then developing the spiritual skills that reflect that kind of of uh, ministry of reconciliation. And I think, I don't, maybe you think of yourselves this way. I know the, the pastors and, and elders often think of their calling in terms of uh, the ministry of reconciliation, and rightly so, but I'd like all of you to think of yourselves as ministers of reconciliation. That's what God has called you to do. And so when we read these instructions, when we become skilled in their use, we're really doing what Christ has, has called us to do. And of course, His Ministry is not only the the prototype, the example, but it is the foundation for any reconciliation that goes on. And I guess, uh, I hope it goes without saying, but maybe it doesn't. When we even forgive one another, we're forgiving one another on the basis of the death of our Lord Jesus, His pardon. So we're really taking what Christ has accomplished and applying it to each other's life. I suppose, and there are many reasons for it, that um, a lot of people who come into the church, particularly from broad evangelicalism, they're not quite sure what to make of this whole idea of church discipline. Um, Any reference to discipline kind of makes people feel creepy crawly. And any time you think about discipline entrusted to the hands of human beings, then it gets real scary, or can be. There are so many... Um, examples of churches that abuse their authority to discipline, uh, and people, some have experienced that or they've heard about it. So there's a whole mixture of things that, that make people have a pretty negative view, a negative attitude about church discipline, and as a consequence, they're, they're eager enough to steer as clear uh, from it as they, they can. I hope... Uh, and I've even heard, and I've, I've mentioned this, uh, I think, in a presbytery speech somewhere in my lifetime. It's sort of rattling around in the memory. That uh, even in presbytery, sometimes we will distinguish dealing with something pastorally from dealing with it in a disciplinary way. Uh, let's not discipline. Let's be pastoral. Well, you see, I hope the last hour convinced you that that's a dichotomy that is absolutely wrong. Now. There could be non-pastoral discipline. But biblical discipline is always pastoral. That's the point of it. There's no reason for us to be disciplining each other within the body of Christ if it is not out of that pastoral concern to restore and then to help cause to grow. And again, yesterday we were talking about the fact that if, uh, if we don't all grow, then none of us grow. And uh, Dave Winslow was just reminding me, or telling me, and this is a a great additional illustration. When they go on the backpack trips, you know, there's a lot of bearing one another's burdens that has to go along. You pack up that pack, and then maybe you get to a certain altitude or a certain point in the trip, and and you you just can't carry it all. And and he said some of the weaker hikers sometimes can't make it over a pass, and, and the stronger ones have to go back and help because you're not going to leave anybody behind. You all get over the pass or nobody gets over the pass. And that's so much what we are about when we're in our pilgrimage to glory. We're, uh, we're climbing the mountain, so to speak, and, and uh, we have to help each other. And, and so, so I, I hope... And you know, if, if, um, if you have a negative attitude about church discipline... It's sort of like disciplining your kids, too. I mean, if, 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 if you have to wait until 
some horrendous offense before you use corporal punishment or sometimes even other kinds of disciplines, then you're, you're quite likely, when you finally exercise it, to exercise it in the wrong spirit. You know, I'll never strike my child, say parents, until I am so ticked off with them that I can't stop myself, then I'll strike them, but it will be completely wrong. So, we need a positive attitude. I hate that term, but, you know, we need to look positively upon the pastoral discipline that goes on in the church. Now, all we have time for this morning is a quick sketch of what Jesus uh, commands us to do, and I'm going to concentrate on what I call informal discipline because it's what goes on personally before the matter really comes to the official attention of the church. I could do another lecture or two on what happens then when it's finally brought to the attention of the elders and they need to begin to deal with an unrepentant offender, including things like formal church discipline and censures and so forth. We'll just have to leave that for another time and place because I want to talk about the informal processes and then a word at the end about the restorative processes when someone is brought to repentance even after formal church discipline. So this is a a, a kind of a sketchy presentation even though it's going to be full even at that. In these verses, beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Jesus gives us some specific how-to instructions regarding uh, how we are to do discipline. We uh, and, and so as we look at it, uh, I hope we'll keep in mind what we talked about last time. Our goal is always the restoration of the offender. Now, in our book of discipline, um, there are several reasons for church discipline that are highlighted, and I don't want to take anything away from that. Um, I'm just not going to incorporate it. But obviously, discipline is to glorify Christ. It's to warn others not to fall into sin. But we're going to continue to concentrate on our personal goal of seeking to restore the offender in brotherly love out of a profound humility. So it's restorative discipline. That's what we're trying to perform. And I hope God will enable us uh, to put this into practice more and more in our relationships within the local churches and and beyond on the presbytery level and and in the regional church where that's appropriate. When there's a problem between you and another believer, Jesus says you must go to him or her and resolve the issues privately, if possible, through a loving, restorative confrontation. Now, it might go with, uh, again, go without saying, but my experience is is it, it does not. This is a command of the risen Christ. This is not pious advice. This is not a suggestion that you are free to take or leave. These are the commandments of God himself. And so, in the same God who sent Moses to Pharaoh, the same God who sent Nathan to King David, sends you to your brother or your sister to seek to restore them. Now, we need the command because if our attitude of loving concern for one another flags, let's say your brother has struck you on the right cheek and now you're trying to decide, okay, what do I do next? And you're wrestling with all of that. Sometimes you have to fall back on the fact that you don't have a choice. Jesus says, do it, you got to do it. Um, There are reasons why we are hesitant to go to our brother or sister personally. Um, 
It doesn't come easily. It's embarrassing at best. Uh, sometimes we're fearful. You know how we often impute to other people what we think our own reaction would be. And so if somebody came and confronted me and I thought I'd fly off the handle, then it's pretty reasonable for me to expect that if I had to go to them, they're going to fly off the handle, and I don't want that. That's frightening. That's intimidating, so I stay away. So we get incentive from Jesus' command. Again, remember that you are brothers. If your brother sins, so we should gladly give and gladly receive this discipline from one another because we are members of one another. If you would lay down your life for your friend in imitation of Jesus, will you not go to him, go to her personally, privately, to seek to restore that one from whatever sin they've fallen into? It is Christ, our Lord and Savior, who commands us. The authority of His command will get us over the hump sometimes in order to obey, uh, even when we're intimidated. But as I said earlier, I think the more we practice this, the easier it will become, like most spiritual disciplines. And it will become more natural to us, just like those guys who were uh, so accustomed to evangelizing that everywhere they went and everything they did was considered to be an evangelistic opportunity whatever else they might have been doing at the time. Okay, sometimes there's a problem that comes into this mix too and uh, that hinders us, and that's the loyalty to men that may take precedence over loyalty to God. Uh, Teenagers especially uh, experience tremendous peer pressure not to rat out a friend, so to speak, Uh, and so they won't go to a person to confront them uh, or take a matter from the single private stage to two or three witnesses because it's just not done. Loyalty to your peers takes precedence over loyalty to Christ. And I would exhort you young people, and it's not that you're the only ones, we all have our own forms of peer pressure, but you have to love Christ more than anybody else in your life. And if a brother or sister is sinning and is trapped, You need to help them and get whatever help you can. And don't imagine, don't let Satan lie to you and say, well, you're not doing it because you love them, you care about them. Proverbs has a word to parents which is equally true of peers. If you will not discipline one another in a biblical way, you really desire the death, the spiritual death and sometimes even the physical death of those from whom you withhold that kind of discipline. Sin is enslaving. Sin is killing us. And so we don't love each other if we let one another stay trapped in those sins. And then, of course, there are some sinful substitutes. Um, The common problem we all have within the church when it comes to dealing with damaging or broken relationships is gossip. We'll talk about it with other people, but not with the person concerned. I got an email uh, a couple of weeks ago from somebody who was writing to me about a third party, and they said, I'm writing to you because I think you need to fix this problem. Well, that was easy. Write back, why is it my problem and not your problem? Now, if it needs to come to two or three witnesses down the road, let me know, but you need to go and talk to that person. But we all frequently do that. We'll get on the phone and tell someone else the whole story from our perspective. 
and yet would not go and lay that same story out in front of the person who has offended us or whom we have offended. So be careful of gossip, and, it, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I duplicated those two articles to make available to you, again, just because we can't talk in detail about everything, but it's a good reminder, particularly of the sort of pious gossip that disguises itself as prayer requests and uh, mutual concerns and all of that kind of stuff. Watch it. Those are, um, those are very, very dangerous substitutes, but oftentimes we're, we're satisfied that if we've shared the problem with someone else and we've gotten it off our chest, we don't feel so bad anymore and we think we've somehow solved the problem. All we've done is make it worse. We all see problems in each other's lives. We all have opinions about one another's behavior and habits and attitudes. Sometimes those concerns really involve sin and not simply personal preference. When they do, we've got to go to our brother, go to our sister alone first and seek to win them. And as I said last hour, I think even in public matters, with some exceptions, I know Paul rebuked Peter uh, in, the, in the face of uh, the uh, other disciples so that they would not be led astray by his hypocrisy. So I'm not saying there's never a case for uh, opening salvo in public, but if you really are interested in restoring one another, private, personal discussions are the best way to do that. Well, who should go? Sometimes this gets us hung up. You know, most of the time the rule of thumb is whoever spills the milk should clean it up, right? You made the mess, you, you clean it up. And uh, so we might say, well, if someone has offended me, then they should come to me. And so we'll wait for them. And if they come, fine. But if they refuse to come, then the matter remains unresolved. But here the rule of thumb is wrong. We have to take the initiative, no matter what the circumstance. Whoever becomes aware of the problem has to initiate the process. And there's re reasons for that. We talked about last time from Galatians 6.1, the brother or sister may be trapped in their sin in some way. They not, may not really be in a position to begin to deal with it. Um, they may have become hardened through sin's deceitfulness, to use the words of Hebrews 3.13. Um, you know, a, a, a self-deceptive drunk person. Uh, I mean, I've ha counseled a few over the years that, that just they'll insist to your face that they don't have a problem. Well, if you wait for somebody who doesn't have a problem to deal with his problem, it'll never happen. Or someone who's addicted to internet pornography who says, I can handle it, I can handle it. I don't need any help. I don't need to talk to anybody about it. There are all kinds of reasons why we would hesitate. Sometimes we don't even know that there's a problem because sometimes what causes difficulty between us is really innocent in that it's not intended, but it's, uh, it leaves an impression or it, uh, it uh, seems to be more serious than it really was. And so, whoever is at fault, you have to take the initiative. If you are aware of a problem, you must go. If you look at Matthew 5:23 and 24 and compare that with Matthew 18:15, here we read, if your brother sins against you, so presumably your brother is the offender, you are the offended one. But in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, so that would suggest that you're the offender, or at least possibly the offender, but you become aware that your brother might have something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So whether you think you're the offending party or your brother or sister is the offending party, when you become aware of it, you need to go. Uh, Jay Adams boils it down into a nice little rule of thumb. The one with the sore toes goes. Okay, If you've had your, sore toe, your toes stepped on and you're sore, whoever has the sore toes goes because they're the one who at least initially knows that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Why does Jesus lay the responsibility on you to take the first step? We've already seen some of the reasons, the debilitating effects of sin on the offending brother. But beyond that, we have the example of Christ Himself. Again, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, imagine the disastrous condition we would be in if God said, it's their problem, they sinned, they have to take care of it. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. He came looking for us. Last time we talked about developing a a Christ-like instinct for seeking and restoring that which is lost. And so that must drive us to take the initiative. What's the purpose of going? Jesus says you are going to try and win your brother, win your sister. And so you have to bring your brother or sister to a conviction of sin. And then if they are convicted by the Spirit of God and your words applying Scripture, then they will repent and you forgive them and they are won over. And that brings you back into an open and fruitful relationship with each other as well as with the Lord. The word that Jesus uses here is elenko which means to prosecute successfully. It's a term that comes out of the law courts. The NASB translates it reprove. Uh, NIV translates it show him his fault. Uh, But the idea is that you have to make your case effectively to your brothers so that they come to realize, yes, I have offended. This was wrong. There is a problem. I need to confess to God and to the ones I have offended in order to be restored. It assumes the offense you have taken is truly the result of your brother's sin, um, that the charge is well-grounded, rather than you just being miffed at somebody for doing something that, that just you know, isn't really right or wrong, it just doesn't, it doesn't suit you properly. You may have to bring some evidence to bear upon your brother or sister to make your case. And so it often involves going through facts of things that happened, things that were said, things that were not done or done. And, um, and so this conversation is going to involve some information that has to take place. Now, sometimes when you go, the event will be so immediately uh, um, well known to both of you that you don't have to do very much. But my brother and I, when we were hashing over 15-year-old details, both of us can't remember a lot of those details. So it was sort of like, well, what was this? And who said that? And what was done there? And what was the order of events and stuff? It takes some doing sometime to sort out what the real responsibility is. But if you're going to bring 
your brother or sister to a conviction of sin before God, you need facts and you need biblical admonitions and exhortations and you need to bring the two together. That's what you're trying to do when you go privately. What if you're not sure if there's an offense? I mean, I'm sure like me, sometimes you recognize that something isn't right. Some brother or sister, they just seem a little cold, a little distant, and, uh, and maybe you've had good, warm fellowship before, and you're kind of thinking, you know, something just doesn't seem quite right, but you're going back through your memory and say, you know, I don't think I did anything particular, and there was no event here. So you have to go not saying, here's the problem, let me show you what it is, but to go more um, tentatively, more openly. And there we get help from Luke 17, verse 3, which uses a different term. Uh, the word epitomao, which means to rebuke tentatively. Here the idea is that you'll sort of lay out a situation like I've noticed that uh, you, know, you don't come up to me uh, uh, after church when we're having coffee anymore and, and chat like we used to. Is there a problem? Have I said something? Have I done something? Have I neglected to do something that has caused you to distance yourself from me? You explain the situation as you see it, and you give your brother the opportunity to help you get the facts straight. You don't go in there saying, here's the brief, and you need to see it that way, but rather you go in trying to get clear, and you give your brother the opportunity to explain himself. You entertain legitimate excuses from your sister. The idea there is to overcome the limitations sometimes of reading body language or circumstances or relying on secondhand information. You know, somebody says, I think so-and-so has a problem with you. <laughs> okay, go. So try and figure out what, what the problem is, if there is one. Uh, you might have to hear both sides and continue extenuating circumstances. This is where getting the beam out of your own eye so you can see the speck in your neighbor's eye is very, very helpful. This is the kind of gentle answer that will help turn away your brother's wrath. I mean, I, I can guarantee you, if you go to someone gangbusters, you're much more likely to get a defensive response than if you go and say, this is the way it seems to me. Am I seeing it clearly? Or you may be involved in the sin. And so you may have to go, first of all, saying, this is my responsibility, these are my sins, and I've asked God to forgive me, and now I'm here to ask you to forgive me. There comes the beam out of your eye. And after having received your neighbor's, your brother or sister's forgiveness, then you can say, but here are some other things that we ought to be concerned about, and we want to address them as well. I think this is always the best way to start the process of personal conversation, pers personal confrontation, even though there may be cases where you have to do more than this, and, and, uh, but it, it never hurts to uh, start things off at the lowest possible decibel level when you're trying to confront these things. And it may be the prelude to a more firmer, uh, uh, to a firmer uh, measures if conviction doesn't arise out of this more gentle uh, a tentative rebuke. Always remember that the attitude of your heart should be that gentleness that is seeking to restore. Uh, remember taking the bandage off of the burn wound. That's how you want to try and handle these things. Now, if, if you've been offended, you're not going to feel like approaching a brother that way. 
And you may have to give yourself a couple of hours or a day to get your own sinful anger, even if it's justified in some way, under control so that you can go that way. But you can't, once you calm down, just say, okay, now I'm over it, things are better. We have to go, Jesus says. Now the purpose and the promise of winning your brother or sister is to be central. The reason that Jesus says go by yourself alone and deal with this person is you're trying to limit the scope of the problem. Gossip is happy enough to create a spreading fire, as James speaks of it. But you are to be a peacemaker. That means you don't want this breach to cause any more impact upon the life of the body than absolutely necessary. And so you're trying to confine it as much as possible to keep the disruption to a minimum. And I would say also to hold your brother or sister's reputation in the church intact as much as possible. If someone sins and then they repent and they're forgiven, then it's just as well that not everybody know that those sins took place in the first place. There's no need for it. And yet sometimes we would like to broadcast it in our perversion, even so that then when we magnanimously forgive this horrific offender, everybody will know how gracious we truly have been after the, uh, after the person has repented. Now, that doesn't mean, and this is again a, a point for another talk, I don't think this means that these conversations, you pledge yourself to absolute confidentiality. You really can't because the system or the procedure pledges bringing more people into it if the private conversation isn't successful. So, you know, and there's an awful lot of pleas for confidentiality. You know, I, so-and-so told me such-and-such, such, but I can't tell you who told me because that would be a breach of confidence. Well, if you can't tell me who said it, you shouldn't be telling me what they said either. You know, that's, that's the way gossip goes selectively. Jesus says, if he listens, and by this he means if he heeds what he's, it's not just physically hearing the, the words that you're speaking, but actually responds favorably to them, and as a result, repents because he's been convicted of his or her sin. And uh, notice this is not saying if he apologizes. Sometimes we really have to work at making sure that the person who is repenting is really taking the sin seriously and turning from it. And, and uh, you know, the biblical doctrine of repentance, as our catechisms point out, is, is a rich one, and there's uh, lots of dimensions there, so we're not just trying to say uh, that this repentance should be a minimal response, but if he repents, then you forgive him. You forgive her. And um, that ends the matter. You have won your brother, Jesus says. Um, Dialasso, the term there translated, you have won your brother, means to exchange enmity for friendship. So the idea is this affects a reconciliation. And I guess I should mention this because it's so common. You know, there are many people in the church who think that you can forgive somebody and then have nothing to do with them anymore. So you forgive, but you don't restore the relationship. And again, if we forgive like, uh, can you imagine, again, God saying, I forgive all your sins, but I don't want to see anything of you anymore. Stay out of my life. I mean, where would the gospel go if that was the approach? So Jesus presupposes that where there's reconciliation, there will be a restoration of the fellowship between the people involved. 
This restoration may take more work to effect, depending on the nature of the disruption and its effects. Uh, Certainly if a husband and wife sin against each other and there are serious breaches in the relationship, maybe even if adultery takes place, it's going to take a lot of work to restore that relationship. But that's the goal. Not simply to say, oh, okay, I forgive you, but I want a divorce anyway. But rather to try to restore. Now, you might need help from other believers. And ultimately, you may need help from the church. What do we do if our brother or sister does not listen, does not repent, and therefore is not one? Well, Jesus says in verse 16, If he will not listen, take one or two others along with you. Notice, what moves the process along is that failure to listen. It's not how serious the sin was in the first place. In civil or judicial codes, penalties are attached to the magnitude of the sin, so if you, or the crime. So if you steal something, that's one thing. If you kidnap somebody, that's another thing. If you rape somebody, that's another thing. If you murder somebody, that's another thing. And the punishments are all laid out according to the magnitude of the sin. But because God's discipline is remedial, big sins can be quickly forgiven if there's repentance, and small sins may become the cause of church discipline if there's no repentance. And that goes back to what I skipped over pretty quickly in the last hour. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. You know you're a believer if you heed the word of God. And if you dig in your heels and you resist or deflect the Word of God, if you're stubborn and unrepentant in the face of God's continual appeals, you've got something to worry about. And if that continues and persists, the church will even have to say, your profession of faith is no longer credible. Just as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are not my sheep, you do not listen to my voice. So it's very, very important to realize that it's this failure to listen that moves things from the private stage to the semi-private stage when you go with two or one or two others. It's the increasing hardness of heart and the self-deception of a brother or sister that refuses to repent when they are gently and, and yet firmly confronted that becomes the major problem. And in later stages of discipline, uh, it's that hardness of heart that finally calls, uh, uh, causes the church to have to act. So it's not the magnitude of the original offense necessarily that determines the shape of the later discipline, but how do people respond to the earlier stages of discipline. Now the second step turns up the spiritual pressure, so to speak, by involving a few others. How do these other people function in the process? Well, Jesus alludes to the provision of Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, when he quotes, saying, Every matter should be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here's a private, personal application of an Old Testament judicial law. The law required multiple witnesses to bring a conviction Now, Jesus says you take one or two others so that in a private setting, they can help bring this um, unrepentant uh, offender to repentance. So these one or two others will function ultimately 
if things do not turn around, as judges of the evidence, um, whether it's for the original offense, whatever that might be, or how the brother responded or the sister responded in the first confrontation. And these one or two others are also fellow confronters. So they're going to go along to help you bring this person to repentance. With that in view, here's a couple of suggestions about when you're trying to pick somebody to go with you in these circumstances. Uh, Obviously, you want to pick somebody who has a reputation for integrity, someone who is not a respecter of persons. You know, so often uh, when you move to this stage, the, the, the person who's unrepentant justifies their continued unrepentance by saying, now so-and-so is going to come back and gang up on me with some of his friends. Informally speaking, I mean, we're not talking about a beating here. And so I don't have to listen, because I didn't listen to my brother, and now he's going to bring some other people on his side, so to speak. So, if the person who comes is already known to be no respecter of person, someone who has self-control, not easily uh, provoked to anger and so forth, and that's be, that, may, that kind of a person is very helpful as a witness and a fellow confronter. Um, I think it's good to pick someone that your brother who is offended knows is likely to be as searching and critical of you who have made the first overture as of the offender. So pick somebody who he will think is likely to be on his side as long as they are people of integrity and fair-mindedness. If there are brothers or sisters in the church who are known for special wisdom and insight and, and have special credibility or rapport uh, relative to the case, I think those are people, good people to draw on. Um, it's good to, keep some, or to take people who are not implicated in the original offense, those who could bring a, a certain measure of objectivity, as much as that is humanly possible, to the, um, to the situation. And then I think all of our churches, perhaps, especially as we begin to develop the skill of discipline, are, are going to show that that is their spiritual gift, that they are really good at sitting people down and helping them hear each other, acting as peacemakers, mediators in that sense. Is this thing still working? I, the, okay, all right. Okay. I just, it, sometimes it sounds real loud to me and sometimes it doesn't, so I don't know whether we're cutting in and out on the mic or whatever. So you go then with others. It doesn't mean now you start the jackhammering necessarily, but it does mean that this person has to be confronted by several brothers or sisters. And think about yourself on the receiving end. If someone comes to me alone, I might tell myself, you know, they just misunderstood me, or we've never had a very good relationship, or there's all kinds of reasons why I shouldn't listen to them. But now if two or three others come and they listen to this conversation between the two offended parties, and then they begin to say, well, you know, I hear you saying this, I think you've missed this, you've misunderstood that, I mentioned a, a few uh, days ago that I've had the privilege of working with a couple of Euodias and Syntyches over the years. And I mean, that was my job basically there to, to listen to them, talk to each other, and then to say, did you hear what she just said? Have you taken account of that explanation or whatever? And then maybe the person will say, yeah, no, I, I heard them say that, but you know, that went right over my head. So that's helpful. So you're a facilitator for bringing these people together. And if you get good at that, 
then you're a tremendous resource to the church because you can be called upon to help other people who haven't done very well on the, um, the initial private uh, conversations. And I should also say, uh, these tenses here that Jesus used suggest continuing action. So we ought not to approach Matthew 18, 15 and following as, we, as if we have you know, two steps we need to check the box, and once we've checked those boxes, then we can really get down to the nitty-gritty, which is filing charges and, and nailing these guys to the wall in front of the elders. We have to go privately, maybe more than once, to try to win your brother. And only when you're really sure that you're not getting anywhere and you're not going to get anywhere privately do you go with two or, uh, one or two others. And then you try that until you're sure so you see, you're reluctant to move it on. And I do think, and I'll jump back to us as leaders in the church, um, this, this is something that we have, to, we have to practice because otherwise we are litigious people whose opening salvo is to draft the charges and to get on the phone to the moderator of the presbytery. We may still have to discipline one another but let's make sure that we're real slow and cautious and even reluctant to bring it to that point, even if the issues are theological and not simply personal. Because maybe in that process we'll be able to weed out a lot of the personal poison that makes the theological issue so hard to really deal with as we should. We don't live above this law, this commandment of our risen Savior. Well, Jesus goes on to say that if, even in that intermediate step with one or two others, your brother or sister still refuse to, to uh, heed and to repent, then take it to the church, tell it to the church. And as I mentioned, just in the interest of time, we can't, we can't uh, <clears throat> go through that because then the church has its own responsibilities. And I would just say briefly that I think sessions, when these matters come to their attention, when they're doing what our black book calls a preliminary investigation, they need to kind of go back and revisit these earlier steps themselves. Not just to see, did they happen, but sometimes a private confrontation by the elders of the church will bring about a change that the in, informal discipline hasn't so that the elders never really do have to finally bring it to charges and to adjudicate it. So, going, helping, seeking to restore, that's... That's the driving concern as we use the procedure. Well, what if the person doesn't repent and ultimately they are disciplined and perhaps even put out of the church? Is that the end of the story when someone is excommunicated, for example? Is, is that it? Um, our session continue, keeps a role of disciplined members. And uh, when we have our sessional prayer meetings, we pray for all of those people. You know, some of them go back 10 15, 20 years. But we keep praying because they, even though we treat them as non-believers, they're not garden variety non-believers unknown to us. They're people under the discipline of our church and they need our prayers. Most of them are so far gone that we don't have much continued personal contact with them. But um, even formal discipline is not the end of the story. We're always thinking about, rest, just like for your children who have wandered from the faith. You don't say, well, you despise the covenant, that's it. You're out of here. You keep pleading with God to turn them around. Well, the prodigal children of the church 
including adults, need to be prayed for and brought back. And happily, the New Testament gives us a really clear illustration of where one offender thus disciplined is restored. So let's turn uh, over, well, we won't turn to the passage just yet, but uh, it comes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 in particular. What I want to mention before we leave uh, Matthew 18 uh, is just to be encouraged that Jesus says this process will work. If you follow the steps in the right spirit and attitude, Jesus promises to help us. Verses 18, uh, Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now this is another verse that has suffered badly at the hands of its friends by putting it on wall plaques to urge us to the effectiveness of prayer. Now, two or three gathering together and praying, certainly God promises to bless that. That's great. So I'm not saying that the generalized application, but in the context, what Jesus is saying is, as two or three gather together to take this task on, as we work with one another, I'm there. The effectiveness of the whole process is being commended here. It's not just a statement about prayer in general, but Jesus' particular promise to bless this whole process. If you cultivate a willingness to give and receive discipline as members of one another, you will grow accustomed to the Holy Spirit's operation of this discipline in your midst for your good and the good of your whole church. And so it will be said of us, and I love the verse Isaiah 58:12, where God's people will be called the repairers of broken walls, the restorers of streets with dwellings. Wouldn't that be great if that's what was how our churches were known? Broken people can come here and get fixed. Not just in their relationship with God, but in their relationship to other people. Broken relationships here can be fixed. Broken walls repaired and cities, streets restored with dwellings. Now I ought to also mention just quickly that not every issue between us, even every sin issue, needs to be raised among our brothers. Um, We are told that love can and should cover a multitude of sins. And I really think that is a fruit of how much we do practice this and how well we get to know each other in the process of our fellowship. We know when we can trust somebody to solve their own problem, to take care of it. And we know when somebody's just trying to gaff us off so that they don't have to face it. And so love really can cover a multitude of sins. Well, let's jump now quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had chided the church for its failure to exercise discipline over one of its members who was involved in a scandalous sexual sin, a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother, presumably. Then he ordered the church to expel that offending member from their midst, and he delivered that one over to Satan for chastening, uh, that his soul might be saved in the day of judgment. And so that's the background. 
Apparently, after that was done, and it's interesting because Paul has to discipline the congregation for not discipline. I mean, he doesn't excommunicate them, but he, 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 uh, he verbally admonishes them for their failure to exercise discipline. So first the church had to repent and exercise the discipline, and then the man who was disciplined repented. And so now Paul has the happy duty of instructing the Corinthians what to do uh, this repentance having taken place. So he gives them uh, this instruction concerning restoration. Chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. So there's the the discipline of the congregation by Paul's rebuke. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And when I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of, our, of his schemes. So he's telling the church, now that this man has repented, here is how you restore him. And there are three commands in particular. First of all, verse 7, forgive him. He was disciplined because he refused to repent. He was put out of the church because he refused to repent. He was treated as a pagan and a tax collector because he refused to repent. But when somebody repents, the only appropriate response by God's people is to forgive that one. Now again, there may need to be some discussion about just what that person is repenting for and do they really understand the issues at stake. And so we're not trying to short circuit that. But we need to restore a person by forgiving them. And as has been pointed out, um, one example by, uh, in Jay Adams' book, From Forgiven to Forgiving, forgiveness involves a promise which must then be kept. In forgiveness, we promise not to bring a matter up to that person again from ourselves. We, not, we won't bring it up before God, and we won't bring it up before other people. But of course, there'll be lots of temptations to break that promise to go back and pick those scabs over again, or to gossip again about that person. And then you have to say, wait a minute, no, we promised. We granted forgiveness, and that promise must be kept. The second command is to comfort that person. Why? Well, the reason is given, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Have you ever asked for repentance and been refused? Uh, asked for forgiveness and been refused? And no matter if you sought it with tears, you would not be forgiven. There's no sorrow quite like it, is there? To beg and beg and beg, to acknowledge your sin, to plead for forgiveness and have someone say, I will not forgive you. It's an overwhelming sorrow. The word catapino there. Uh, means to swallow up something completely. 
And so, for example, in Hebrews 11.29, the term is used of the Egyptian army that was swallowed up completely in the sea when the Red Sea closed over them. Or in a positive light, death is swallowed up completely in victory through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if we do not comfort and restore one another, then that abiding and excessive sorrow will continue. A brother or sister who is truly repentant and yet remains unforgiven by the church is spiritually just like one who has a millstone tied around his neck and dropped in the depths of the sea. And then the third command in verse 8 is to reaffirm your love. You know, one of the dangers is if, the, if you're disciplined, uh, and this is true even privately, again, as I mentioned, that you won't really think that you're restored to the previous relationship. So you've asked for forgiveness and people have granted, but you still feel like, you know, I'm, I'm on the outside. I, I don't really belong. And so reaffirming your love is to say, yes, brother, you're, everything's fine with us now. You're welcome here. You don't have to spend some time on the outer circles until you can be admitted back in again. <clears throat> and that may take ongoing reassurance. Again, you may have experienced when you've been hard-hearted about something in your life that is sinful, blind, or stubborn, and then God breaks you by His Word and Spirit, then so often you are so shattered that you can't get over it. Even though you know God has forgiven you, maybe other human beings have forgiven you, but you, it just keeps coming back to you. And the evil one is always there to throw it in your face again and again and again. And we need ongoing reassurances of the love of God and the love of His people in order to encourage us to be restored and to take our place again. So just like the mandate to discipline... The command to forgive and to restore has divine warrant. It's not pious advice. You are not permitted to forgive, but allowed not to forgive. You must forgive and restore. And then Paul says in verse 11, basically, this is how we beat the devil. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Failing to restore someone is the devil's playground, and we outwit him um, if we are careful about these things. Well, that's a quick sketch of these procedures. We're just about out of time, but I, I just want to encourage you, all of us, that the faithful, loving exercise of this pastoral discipline within the church will be effective. Obviously, there are, as we sang earlier, false sons in the pale of the church. But this process will separate more and more those who are truly the Lord's sheep from those who are not. And discipline enables us to distinguish the church from the world. But it also means that the homogeneity and the loving intimacy among the body, within the body of Christ grows more and more. Uh, for those of you who have experienced the joy of, of this kind of reconciliation, you know that oftentimes the relationship, it's not so much that you don't go back to where you were before, it's that you go forward to something that you never had before. And that's wonderful. That creates a freshness and a richness in our relationship that is really to be treasured. So the benefits are worth it. 
So we not only have the command of the Lord, but we have His promise as incentives to carry out this discipline. Well, I do thank you all again for giving me the opportunity to uh, bring this material to you, and I've enjoyed the conversations uh, uh, outside the meeting too, and I've been encouraged. I, I mentioned uh, uh, when I mentioned the other day about some reconciliation, a couple of you went and came and said you've had conversations like that this week too, so the Lord really did answer that prayer. Now, our problem is, of course, that we tend to forget very quickly, so halfway down the mountain we might be having arguments again already, That's all right. We know sins will disrupt us. But we now know that we can overcome those divisions, little ones and big ones, if we'll give ourselves to making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we have a heart like our Savior to seek and to restore that which is lost, God will bless us. And uh, maybe the Presbytery of Southern California can become a kind of a model even beyond our doors, for people who really love each other and are willing to pay the price to bring that love to expression. God grant that it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come back to where we began, which is in our faith, face to face with you and your nail-scarred hands. We thank you that you put to death the hostility of a holy God because of our sins through your death upon the cross. And we so rejoice in the richness of forgiveness. We so delight our hearts in the knowledge of reconciliation, the assurance of the Father's love, all because of what you did. And you have taught us and reminded us again this week that that same cross that reconciled us to you has laid the foundation for the reconciliation of all of your people together. Lord, we know that the task is huge. But we also know that if we set ourselves to obedience in faith, you are able to do far beyond what we could ask or imagine. Maybe we've just become, in our unbelief, too accustomed to the estrangements, the alienation, the divisions, the separations, the scatterings. And so we just don't believe that you would do anything different. Lord, we pray that this week you have convinced us that that's not the case. And help us to be humble and diligent, eager and willing to express in our own ways the love of Christ. And we pray that you might unite our hearts again and again and again. Whenever sin divides us and disrupts us, draw us back together again in your precious love. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.